Rebecca Adil here. Just a quick note to say thank you to everybody that's been rating the podcast on iTunes and everywhere else. It means the absolute world and I'm so grateful for all the five-star reviews. Keep them coming, please. That would be wonderful. Additionally, if you do fancy helping support the podcast, helping make it even better, we do have a Patreon account now and that's patreon.com slash killing underscore time and you can there become a Bow Street runner or a super sleuth. It's up to you. Anyway, on with the show. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments in our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Radil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we journey into the second part of episode five. The game is afoot. In the summer of 1946, two women tragically lost their lives. The first, Marjorie Gardner, had been a trained artist and occasional film extra. The second, Doreen Marshall, had served within the Women's Royal Naval Service during the Second World War. Both women had had the unfortunate luck of encountering murderer and rapist Neville Heath. Marjorie in the Panama Club Kensington. Doreen at the seaside resort of Bournemouth. Heath was captured, convicted and executed for his crimes in October of the same year. But interest in the case had only just begun. In the second of the two-part special, I speak to actor and screenwriter Mark Gatiss about the Neville Heath case and other notorious 20th century crimes. Let's move on to some cases then. So your interest, correct me if I'm wrong, is in poisonings. You're interested in poisoning cases, but also in the kind of post-war period as well. Are there any crimes in particular that you've been particularly, well, fascinated with? The one that always fascinated me as a child was Neville Heath. Mm -hmm. I think that's a combination of things because I saw the Hitchcock film Frenzy quite young. Uh, Hitchcock's penultimate film, which is explicitly inspired by Heath. Mm -hmm. And it's true to say, if you see a sort of wing commander with a pipe who kills people in any stage from 1946 onwards, it's Heath. It's about Heath. Yeah. And so that series, The Charmer, that Nigel Havers did and all that, I, I just, I, I, I suppose it was the idea of of this sort of incredibly respectable, handsome chap being a monster that really intrigued me. And uh, I used to have um, the brochure for... Louis Tussauds Waxworks in Blackpool. I'd never been. I just somehow got the brochure. And I used to pore over it because it had the details of the Chamber of Horrors. And I remember, it's a rookie year, of course. I always got Haig and Heath mixed up. That's what everyone always does. Um, (laughs) But I just used to find that particular one extremely interesting. And what I've come over the years to appreciate more is the sort of post-war world in which he uh, exploded. And what, as a personality, he he was. To me, it's a sort of fairy tale. Sean O'Connor wrote a wonderful book about it called Handsome Brute. And the the fact is, if he, if Heath had had a sort of broken nose and a, and a wall eye, 
they would have locked him up when he was about 15 because he was he was totally wrong he was bent in every respect and he was so good looking and so charming that he, you can see it throughout his criminal history everyone gave him a second chance and it's it's tragic really it's a sort of morality tale that you literally can't judge by appearances and people did constantly mm. i've got a letter somewhere from the daughter of the warder who looked after him in pentonville just before he hanged and he said and she says my dad said it was such a shame because he was such a nice chap <gasps> and you go you think gosh he was doing it right to the end he had, he had a sort of absolute magnetic power over people and sheer force of personality. Goodness know? me. That really interests me. And, and I'm very interested in that sort of post-war world. The idea that, that the war was the perfect place for a person like Heath. That actually what wars need is, is psychopaths. Mm-hmm. He had no nerve whatsoever. He bailed out over Holland and saved his entire crew and got a special badge called the Caterpillar Badge because that was so unusual. He was a war hero and a madman. And that's, isn't that the most fascinating combination of things, you know? And then, of course, most people came back from the war with their nerves shot and all they wanted to do was, was just live in nice suburban avenues and forget all about it. Heath was plonked back into a post-war world that didn't know what to do with him. And he was a nutter. So, uh, you know, his violent temper and his violent personality just eventually found terrible outlet. But I suppose that's always been my most... Uh, the one that sort of intrigued me because it was this strange disconnect between the outside and the inside, I suppose. So let's just go into his background a little bit. So he was born in Essex and he came from a kind of working-class background. But we know that, you know, since his childhood, he'd deserted people and institutions at various times throughout his life. He'd also used aliases, hadn't he? Yeah. So he was known to desert people, but then he'd dated actresses and he'd been obviously drawn to spending time with and being around glamorous people and interesting women. And then in 1946, he murdered two women, Marjorie Gardner and Doreen Marshall, and it was brutal. And he was obviously executed for his crimes, but people were fascinated by him. So you've touched on already the fact that he was he was good looking, but was this the only thing that was drawing attention or was, was there something else going on here? Were people after a distraction after the war? Is that why he was interesting? Oh, yeah, there's, there's, there's partly that. It's like, you know, in a sort of news of the world way, it's just the most perfect thing for people. You know, Orwell writes about so brilliantly and the decline of the English murder is the idea of of people reading about it in the in the Sunday papers. It's it's absolutely perfect. And this case has got it all, you know. Marjorie Gardner, who was a, an artist, model and a film extra, it's almost certainly true that because her sketchbook was found in her flat and has life drawings in it, there was some suggestion that, you know, she was sort of involved in something kinky and, and they ran with that. There, there are all oh. sorts of terrible, uh, prurient sort of stories about... Uh, about her and, and that leads of course to the old saw of well she probably deserved it anyway you know and you, he- you hear all those kind of things in the in the press and the and sort of sensational cheap novels that were th- thrown together straight after the case and stuff like that but I think I think what really got people interested was that they couldn't believe that th- this was this is like s- someone you'd see on a cigarette card as as the person who won the war mm-hmm and now they're dangling at the end of a rope with these terrible, vicious, uh, appalling murders. In terms of 
the stories that pique people's interest that it's got the lot, isn't it? It certainly seems to, especially as well, this this demonisation of the victims or, you know, stigmatisation of the victims as well, as you say, because that happens so often with women when they're caught up in these dreadful crimes. I'm afraid to say it happens to this day. It's the most familiar aspect of all these. And it's sort of continues to happen i think and and so they they do their best to make the the person on the on the other end uh whether they actually killed or not into into some sort of deserving victim i suppose you know? yeah i had a very very interesting visit to scotland yard the black museum and um they were telling me that they are increasingly naming cases after the victims to avoid glamorising the killers. And I, I mean, that's that's a real step change, I think, in terms of not only memorialising the, the poor innocent people, but the idea of, of de-glamorising it, you know. Obviously, for those of us with prurient interest, it's it's also part of the, the, the appeal, isn't it? Mm. And we've all grown up with that idea. But at the same time, it's actually quite dangerous. I mean, there, there are several killers who've sort of wanted to kill more in order to get in the record books or, or to sort of be known as the one who did this, I suppose. You're totally right. And I do feel the last year or so, just the types of programmes that we're seeing on television and the way true crime is reported, there does seem to be something of a sea change happening, which is very welcome. I think, you know, detective stories are always fascinating and it's, I love watching them as well. And I mean, this podcast is about crime, but what I don't want to do with any of these episodes and what we haven't done today is go into the gore and the brutality of it because it's not necessary and it's dehumanising. Oh, completely. And, course, and Jack the Ripper is the most prime, is the prime example of that. It's become an actual industry mm. to an extent which is almost... Uh, it's almost beyond belief, really, that that it can have become so dehumanized to, to be just sort of sort of fairground ride, you know, and the 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 endless cycle of of new theories and and it's it's just I think that that book uh, the five which just came out last year yeah isn't it amazing it's taken a hundred and thirty years for anyone to to think about writing about the women as anything other than just some statistics. And finding uh, wedding photographs of, of uh, Elizabeth Stride, I think it is, um, it's amazing. It, someone, you know, thought to do that and it's, that it's taken this long to think, actually, you know, there are people there we need to talk about. It's not just this sort of phantom thing. Of course, and the book is so interesting for it as well. Mm. It's not it's not lacking in any way. I mean, you, you, you would think that, you know, the interest in true crime is following the cases, and of course it is, but... There's also other ways of telling these stories too and through the people that have been victimised. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a huge, huge area. Of course, the Heath case doesn't stand on its own. It's part of a canon of 20th century crimes that were and still are infamous in their notoriety and impact as much as anything else. Another such case was the murder of Percy Thompson in 1922. Police investigating his death found dozens of love letters between his wife Edith and their lodger Frederick Bywaters. They were both charged with the murder, found guilty and executed soon after. The Thompson Bywaters case, I've always found that fascinating. But, you know, there is a reason why certain stories dominate. Sometimes it's because there is a genuine mystery. We still don't know who did it or 
And those are the ones which I suppose which are the most like detective stories. And then there are other things which are just about the sort of passion of it. You know, the there's a photograph of um, Mr. and Mrs. Thompson and Bywaters, their lodger, and mm-hmm. it's taken in the garden, you know, and they've got an aspidistra or something. And it's just supposed to be a sort of normal picture, but you can just see what's going on. You can It's throbbing with sex. Really? <laughs> and... <laughs> And you just go, oh, my God, look, there's a murder waiting to happen. And I suppose that sort of thing is what really reaches through time to us, I think. And you, that appeals to all kinds of different human instincts. There's also an amazing time sort of telescopes around it. And you, you think, well, they're just like us, aren't they? And, and no matter how far you go back, you just think, well, there are human passions. There's, there's greed, there's revenge, there's love. And everybody suddenly becomes very relatable, I suppose. Yeah, as you say, there are universal themes, aren't there? And I'm just looking at that picture now, actually, and I can see exactly what you mean. Is it the one yeah. with the three of them sitting together? Yeah. Yeah, oh my goodness. It's, if a, you could, it's if an accident look... waiting to happen, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, oh my gosh, it's like something from the Bloomsbury Circle. Um, and yeah. if, if anyone's listening, anybody out there, do Google this picture because it's um, <laughs> it's... They're both reading. Both men are looking in different directions, reading their respective books. And um, she's just there sat in the middle looking bored as hell. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, that's a really, you're right, it's a fascinating image. It's one of those cases, again, that grabbed people's attention. Are there any others that you're interested in? I know you, you have a wide oh. interest in crime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yes, well, uh, Christie always fascinated me i think i saw i saw ten Rillings in place when i was very young and it never left me and it's still a, an amazing piece of work just for those who might need a little reminder john christie was a serial killer during the 1940s and 50s who's believed to have killed at least eight people at his home ten rillington place in london tragically timothy evans was wrongfully convicted of christie's crimes in 1950 and christie was executed um well he wasn't executed until three years later the infamy of the crime has seen it turned into a feature film in 1971 with richard attenborough and um more recently a bbc drama incredible to think they actually shot it in the house next door i mean what what must that have been like i mean it's incredible what they shot the film there yeah yeah in the house next door uh, yes it was demolished about three months later but they they literally shot it there that is Rillington place what and it, the idea of just turning up for work like that yeah, I mean, it's amazing but i think it's you know obviously at its heart it is a story about injustice it's about that the, the wrong man was hanged and that's it, it, it stands as a testament forever to people who try and bring back capital punishment it's like you can't risk this happening again but it's an again an amazing sort of post-war stew of misery and and hopelessness you know it's it's mm. just the most dreadful dreadful sort of thing but it obviously um continues to fascinate i think there was the series recently about it and it was just it was just so dark and yeah miserable. it was like being underwater I'd been underwater all the time. It was, I thought it was, I tell you what's really interesting, just complete tangential thing, but Christie has been played twice by small men and he was actually very tall and gangly. It's a strange quirk that oh. Tim Roth and Richard Attenborough are both really little and uh, I, wonder, I wonder why that is. Isn't that odd? We somehow want him to be, um, <laughs> to be like that, I don't know. 
Mm. That is that is funny actually. But Tim Roth just is so good at playing creepy characters that it just works. It he it works so well, I think. And well, I, I mean, it was I, it's, I hesitate to say enjoyable because it's some part of sort of like an ordeal, isn't it? But I, I actually thought they sort of they almost picked up where Attenborough left off. It was like having more of the same film, you know. <laughs> Um, It's very interesting. And we then come full circle back to the question of why we're so interested in crime. I know it's dark and it's unpleasant, but is there anything to be said about notions of guilt, justice and even punishment? Punishment is really interesting because I think there's a, again, going back to the the romance of crime, copyright, (laughs) there is something in detective fiction, you need the threat of the death penalty, I think, to make it resonate never quite the same without that and that's why books set in that period sort of feel like they've they've got a sort of structure to them which which is not there but that's very different in real life I think and yet it it fascinates me the the Moors murders uh, escaped the rope by a year didn't they yeah they did and and I wonder what post-war British Sunday tabloid life would have been like if they'd been executed Mm. because the 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 other part of it, which is a continuing sort of nasty side of the British character, is the, just the is the disinterring of the dead constantly. So Hindley and Brady were, were boogeymen and they would just periodically fill up 20 pages of newsprint by saying, oh, it's, it's an anniversary or, you know. Charlie Brooker, remember saying brilliantly about the Madeleine McCann case, just saying it's the equivalent of just going, look, 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 look look constantly you know a new headline just keeps it going forever because there's a sort of need in society to have that kind of figure Um, and I suppose if they had been executed they'd they'd probably have found someone else wouldn't they to 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 fill those roles for in perpetuity I think you're right Um, I think society needs to be appalled to almost reassure itself that we're we're better than that and we're not, you know, we're not the kind of people that would do those types of things. But then equally, I think it's a reminder of how dark human nature yeah. can actually be and, you know, the depths that humans can go to. Here's an interesting thing, though. I went to see the waxwork of Neville Heath at Madame de Swords before it was packed away because they've closed the Chamber of Horrors forever. And yeah. they asked if I'd like to see it, so I went to see it. It was a very strange moment. But the British appetite for crime and the prurience of, of it all has not gone away. In fact, if anything, it's redoubled. And yet we don't feel like we can go to the Chamber of Horrors anymore. The last waxwork they made for the Chamber of Horrors was Dennis Nilsson. Now, that means that after 1981, it didn't feel right to make waxworks of famous murderers. Why, why is that when every satellite channel you watch has about 50% true crime? And I suppose things like the London Dungeon continued to prosper. So isn't it interesting that the most famous public face of that interest has now been erased and yet the actual instinct for it has has got stronger? You're right. It bubbles up in different ways, doesn't it? I mean, you mm. see on social media people naming murderers and people that have have done wrong that have got anonymity. You find other ways of, um, of following the story. But then also mm. that... Um, I'm really envious, actually, that you got to go to the Black Museum. There was an exhibition, wasn't there, at the Museum of London a couple of years ago, and it was one of the most in-demand exhibitions. Mm. So there's something there. We're we're, we're fascinated with crime and 
we want to see these macabre objects. And the question is, why? Mm. What is it in us that wants to see this? I suppose what's changed is that you don't have to excuse an interest in it. It's, it's just how we are. But I do think it's, in, it's interesting and valid and important to sort of think about why and examine your own sort of uh, thoughts about that. I have a friend who was, you know, he, he had every book on everything. He had, you know, Luke and Beyond Belief and everything. And what he told me one day he was just halfway through another book and he just put it down and he thought, what am I doing? And he got rid of a lot of them. He suddenly was sort of sickened at himself at the at his sort of obsessional interest in it all. Mm. And I was very struck by that. And But it's just human nature, isn't it? Partly it's the, it's the narrative. We're all drawn to stories and a tragic story when we you know you know the conclusion or perhaps you don't but more often you do know then it's the sort of process it's the law it's the the catching of the killer it's the trial so the the weird area is that it's hand in hand with detective fiction isn't it it's both a safe parlor game because it's already happened yeah. But at the same time, it's it makes you more uneasy because it's real life you're talking about, you know. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. And I wanted to say as well that Martin's Close was brilliant. I loved it. Um, oh, thank you very much. Short, sweet, fun and claustrophobic as well and just brilliantly acted. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed watching that. And I really hope that you can get some more of Judge Jeffries on the TV. Oh, I, I, wouldn't that be nice? I've written an, a new one. I'm going to do another Mr. James. Touch yeah, wood. Yeah, I'm touching wood. Because I don't, I just don't know if anything is going to be filmed this year. And no, you know, it's the most extraordinary thing. I've, everything's been written in a kind of vacuum at the moment. So, um, so I'm taking uh, taking refuge in 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 comfortable ghost stories. <laughs> I think that's what people might want this Christmas, if if we get to make one. Oh well, I'm excited to find out more about that then because I love all yeah. the stuff that you do. It's addictive. It's gothic. It's everything that you would want if you're you know have an interest in that area and yeah they're always fun as well thank you ever so much for your time and so my pleasure take care of yourself after our conversation i realized that i hadn't asked one of the most important questions when it comes to literary murder so i fire a quick email asking is there such a thing as a perfect murder mark gatis quickly responds with if i told you it wouldn't be perfect. Mm-hmm.